Broadcasting from Moscow, Idaho, this is the Camp Retreat Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Darrell, episode 76, Virgin Births and Tyrants. Welcome, everybody, to the Camp Retreat Podcast, a podcast designed to encourage and equip you in the work of evangelism. I'm your host, Keith Darrell, on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, FLF network.com or crosspolitic.com. If you head over to crosspolitic.com, you can learn a little bit more about what we're doing as a network, as well as an up-and-coming rally that we are having uh, May 29th through April the 1st in uh, Cedar Rapids, South Dakota. If you've never been to Cedar Rapids, South Dakota, it's a beautiful part of the country in the uh, Black Hills. You have Mount Rushmore there. You have Spearfish there. And it's a really, really beautiful area. Unfortunately, I'm usually driving through there during um, Sturgis, that giant Harley festival biker thing. No offense if you drive a Harley, but there's, for me as a driver, nothing worse than being stuck behind a bunch of Harleys with that put, 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 hit my chest. Uh, so it'll be nice to be there at the beginning of the summer opposed to the end of the summer. I think that's usually in August when that is happening. And we're going to be holding a rally there. And part of the reason we're holding a rally there is it's a little bit more of a freedom-oriented state. They have not had like a mask mandate and stuff like that. And I was driving through there a few weeks ago and I went to a coffee shop. And you walk in, you're kind of like, something's off. Boom, boom. Get it? Something's off. Yeah, it was their masks. And so their masks were off. And uh, But yeah, it was something that stood out like right away. I was like, holy cow, something is different here. And I had my mask on because I was just used to traveling across country and places wouldn't serve you if you were not masked. And so throw my mask on, go in there, and I realized people in here are not wearing masks. And so that was pretty cool. But it is going to be a rally, um, which I'm not exactly positive the difference between a rally and a conference. Um but it's going to be a rally. Uh, whenever I hear the word rally, when I was a little kid uh, playing baseball, say like fourth, fifth grade, and you know how you would rally your teammates. And so like you'd maybe turn your hat upside down or inside out rather and put it on or put the bill on funny and you'd rally. And I didn't really understand the concept of a rally. So it'd be like the first inning and I'd be like the first at bat and I'd be going up to bat and be like, hey guys, rally me. Uh, rather than realizing a rally was to come late in the game if your team's losing, I was starting things off with a rally. So wanted to get out ahead of it. So we will be having a rally in South Dakota, and we would love for you to join us. We're going to be uh, singing psalms, loving God, and defying tyrants is what the theme is going to be. And if you're able to make it to Nashville, or if you're able to talk to anyone who went to Nashville, I've heard nothing but great things. I greatly enjoyed myself, and I've heard nothing but great things uh, from people who are able to attend. And I do think of all the good stuff that we do, um, I think one of the best things that people can take away is the singing of the Psalms. And if Psalms are being sung and people are being shaped by the songs that they sing and you're being shaped by the Psalms, it just radically changes everything. And if you're steeped there, there's so many other things that fall into line and end up making sense. So if you can join us, you have some vacation time, it's definitely worth getting to that part of the country as well as I think the whole event will be worthwhile. Uh, Now today what I want to talk about is, and I've actually recorded this podcast about three different times and I've not been happy uh, with the way it gets recorded. And and the reason is this. So oftentimes when I'm on campus, I'll finish my day 
or in any other context, I'm usually asked uh, so, something that's affected this question. So if a kid will hear me for the day, he thinks I give pretty good answers to a lot of questions and stuff like that, and I'll get asked if I'm ever stumped out there. And then I'll be talking at a church or like a Sunday school, and that's one of the questions that come up. Do you ever get stumped? And the reality of it is there are issues that very rarely stump me, more the broader philosophical issues, um, just because the nature of what's taking place on a college campus, there's very rarely a radically new idea that's presented to me. Um but within that, there are often some differences with respect to particulars of science, say. So if I'm in the discussion with somebody on the broad strokes of a world uh, where, where, you know, say empirical data and the pursuit of science makes sense, opposed to the particulars of, say, geology or uh, biology or physics, or, yeah, physics, that's just a different discussion, the broader issues. And usually the person who knows tons about the particulars of physics and biology, they haven't thought through the broader philosophy of science. I've thought through the broader philosophy of science. I've not thoroughly thought through every jot and tittle of biology. Obviously, I have not. Um, but then on the flip side, I'm, uh, I would say that the place that I'm often stumped the most would be, in my head, some obscure passage in Ezekiel, Jeremiah, maybe Isaiah, um, or some of the minor prophets, whereas I'm pretty immersed in the Pentateuch or the Torah or the first five books, the Gospels and the New Testament, I'm often very familiar with that material, and I'm not as familiar with the prophets. So someone will bring up some passage in Isaiah. I can think of a girl maybe three or four years ago at Cal Poly Pomona asking me about a particular verse in Isaiah, and I just had to say I didn't know. And the good thing about saying I didn't know is she ended up sticking around for the next two days and still asked questions and was willing to listen to learn, and she was great, but she had a, a, a passage that she didn't have an answer to, and I didn't have an answer to it. And usually what happens is I will go home at that point and study it. But probably 2016, maybe 2015, I was with some friends up in Salem, Massachusetts, preaching at the Salem Witch, not the Witch Festival, but basically a Halloween festival. And it really is it's kind of, you know, the kind of a dark, well, you know, I don't care what you think about Halloween, but it is kind of like a pagan holiday up there. And the witches come out and the Satanists come out and all this sort of stuff. And it really is this kind of a dark parading of evil. And so we went up there to preach one time and uh, I'm preaching. And while I was preaching, a woman ends up asking me, name one prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. And I say, well, Isaiah 7 and the virgin birth. And she was a Jewish woman and immediately responds with, he did not fulfill that because that's uh, an event referring to King A has his time and is not referring to a future event and boom, 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 boom. And I was kind of like, huh. And I had not thought through a, a Jewish apologetic at that point. So in our terminology, say you're a pre-supper, um, that would be called a quote-unquote internal critique. So here we are as Christians. We're saying Isaiah chapter 7 is fulfilled in Jesus, and Isaiah chapter 7 is about a virgin birth 700 years in the future. And the Jew comes along and says, no, you're not interpreting the text properly. One, uh, the idea of Alma does not necessitate a virgin. Uh, that may well be the case, but does not necessitate a virgin. Uh, but more importantly than that, it is a the, the Jews would have a preterist interpretation of that text. And what I mean by that, they would have a past fulfillment. So they believe it's fulfilled in the life of Isaiah and King Ahaz. And so they in turn want to say that Matthew is re using Isaiah wrongly. And so what I want to answer in this, and here's why I've kind of jumbled this a couple times, is I don't believe there's a direct answer for the Jew. And what I mean by that is there is no one argument that will absolutely demonstrate to anyone that Alma means virgin, because it simply does not. And also to the person who's committed to a quote-unquote preterist understanding of Isaiah 7, there is no, see, this is really about something that's uh, 700 years into the future. So what I want to do instead is something a little more modest that would, if you bump into this, it would be a means by which you could 
hopefully that you understand how you're understanding the text and why you understand the text the way you do. And then from there, you'd have to think through what your dialogue would look like with any particular individual. Because that was the place where I, want, I had to step back and be like, oh, I need to re-record this because I didn't think I was able to give you something like, here's a sample dialogue because it's just a longer discussion. And so hopefully that makes sense, the difference between a direct and say an indirect argument. So a direct argument is, hey, I have $10 in my pocket. Let me show you $10 and you pull that out. An indirect argument is something that is not as immediate, but it's kind of proved obviously indirectly. Um, and so we're used to direct arguments more so than indirect arguments. So what I want to do in this time with you is kind of give you a little bit of a hermeneutic of how we're going to understand the text. And when it comes to even prophecy, so I'm going to read Matthew chapter 1, and then we'll just get into it. So in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, it says this, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so very explicitly, Matthew says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And so when you think of prophecy, do you think of primarily or only um, something that is predictive of the future? And so for many people, they think a prophet is one that says, hey, 400, 700 years from now, there's going to be a virgin in uh, the town of Galilee, and she's going to give birth in Nazareth and give birth to um, uh, the Messiah. 700 years from now. So a direct predictive prophecy of Isaiah 7 would be, hey, 700 years from now, here's what's going to happen with this virgin, and the Messiah is going to be born. Um, now, that is one way to understand, I believe, some texts. I think maybe like the clearest way of a predictive prophecy would be something like Daniel chapter 2. Here are the four kingdoms. Here's what's going to happen. Here's a timeline. Here's one right after the other. But then what I want you to do in Matthew's use of fulfill is understand something a bit more typologically. And what I mean by that is this. In our circles, you're probably familiar with Matthew 5, 17, and 18. Do not think I've come to abolish the law of prophets. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So if you think of Jesus fulfilling the law, is that because the law is straight up predictive and say, hey, 700 years from now, this is going to happen? Or is there another sense in which we should read the law and see Jesus as fulfilling it? And now if Jesus is fulfilling the law differently than he is fulfilling the prophecies— what is that difference going to be? And what I think you need to think through, and I think what is helpful in thinking through, is that the law and the prophets, more so than being straight up predictive, and I was actually reading a thing by Gordon Fee the other day, and I don't know where he got his number from, and I'm, I can't remember exactly what his number was, but I think he said only like 2% of Old Testament prophecies are predictive. Not sure, of the prophets are predictive. And so maybe that's just a way of saying, look, Isaiah is this much book, and only X amount of that book is actually predictive of a sense. So that's the way we have a tendency to think of prophecy. What I want you to think of uh, prophecy, and I want you, to, or at least Matthew's use of fulfill, is much more typological in nature than predictive in nature. And what I mean by that is this. In Romans chapter 5, Jesus and, or Paul, sets Jesus and Adam in contrast to another. You have Adam, who's the uh, type, and then Jesus is the anti-type. And so you have these two things uh, that correspond with one another from the very beginning of creation, the first man, to the very last man. Uh, and so in what way is Jesus the last Adam? And I think if we were to sit down and we were to go through Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, David, on and on and on, we would see that each of these individuals 
is a type of Christ because they're a type of Adam that finds their fulfillment ultimately in the person of Jesus. So in that way, Jesus fulfills the law because Adam is in the law, and Jesus fulfills all the purposes of what Adam was to do. Jesus fulfills all of what Abraham was to be and to do. Same thing with Noah, same thing with Isaac, Jacob, and ultimately, in the book, Gospel of Matthew particularly, he is the true Israelite. All of what Israel is to be, Jesus is the fulfillment of these. And uh, uh, Albright and Mann say this, it was the essence of the gospel, supremely exemplified in Matthew and Paul's teaching, that all Israel's experience had been gathered up, fulfilled in Jesus. So the first thing you want to do when you're reading the Old Testament text is every jot and tittle, as Jesus says, is about him. So when you're reading about the creation account, when you're reading about the fall account, when you're reading about the flood and you're reading about Abraham going down to Egypt, all those things are ultimately types and shadows pointing us to Jesus. And what I want to say is the same thing is happening actually even in the prophets. And so um, maybe one of the easiest way to, to think about that, in Genesis chapter 12, you have Abraham go down into Egypt. There's a famine, uh, plagues go on to the Pharaoh down there, then Abraham's end up coming out of Egypt. And I think he, if I remember correctly, even comes out with some plunder. And so in many ways, this is a type and a shadow that finds its fulfillment uh, 400 and some odd years later in the Exodus. And so even in the Old Testament itself, you have fulfillment of the types uh, leading up to the ultimate fulfillment that is in Jesus. And so hopefully that backdrop makes sense. And I think if you were to step back and think about uh, yeah, just the nature of Adam and the nature of Abraham. And okay, how has Jesus fulfilled these things? If you ask yourself that question, um, and then maybe another uh, simple way that just as Abraham offers up Isaac, so God saw the world, he gave his only begotten son. Uh, Isaac is the begotten son. Then you also have in John chapter three, the imagery, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so the son of man must be lifted up. And so all these things, if you're reading them messianically, and I believe you should be reading the Pentateuch messianically, uh, you would see that Jesus is a fulfillment of all these things. So how does it all relate to Isaiah chapter seven? It's this. In Isaiah chapter seven, it is, I'm going to go ahead and say, about a preterist event, something that's going to happen 700 years before the life of Jesus. And the way I get there is pretty simple. Isaiah chapter seven, verse one says this, and the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Syria, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake out. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up a, the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. So Isaiah goes to Ahaz, says, look, these two kings, they're coming up against you. What they want to do is bump off, you know, the, you as a king, and what they're going to do is set up their own puppet king in its place. And so it's, it's actually, and if we're spending more time in this text, it's actually an attack on the line of David, and it's actually an attack on the seed of David. And so what the, these kingdoms are going to do is try to replace their own king there. And so God basically says, look, I'm going to crush the heads of these two other nations. And then God says, ask me a sign. And uh, Ahaz says, I'm not going to do it. And so in verse 14, it says this, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He, being the, 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 
Emmanuel shall eat curds and honey when he know and when when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings, what two kings, uh, the king of Syria and the king of Israel, uh, you dread will be deserted. And so before this boy, according to the text, knows how to choose good and evil, those two kings will be destroyed. Does that sound like something that's going to happen 700 years in the future? Does that sound like something that's going to happen in the life of Ahaz? I think it's pretty clear that it's something that's going to happen in the life of Ahaz. And if we go through chapter 8, we'd see something similar. Uh, but, the, but the point is this. Is, is it unique to this story that there is a woman in a strange, uh, say, condition uh, that is giving birth to a child? So if you think of Sarah giving birth to the promised seed, what is the context of that? When you think of um, uh, was it Hannah in 1 Samuel, who is praying that she would be able to conceive, and then uh, she ends up Giving, giving birth to her son. And so what you have throughout the scriptures, going all the way back to Genesis 3.15, is that you have this uniqueness of women giving birth um, in situations where they should not be giving birth, so to speak. And so what we want to argue, or what I would want to argue, is that yes, this is an event that is referring to something that happened in the life of King Ahaz. But just as there's a sense in which, although not completely, there's a type in the birth of um, Isaac to Sarah that is, in a sense, fulfilling Genesis 3.15, that Mary is a true fulfillment of those things. Um, That's what we kind of want to see going on here in Isaiah chapter 7, that the life of Jesus and the way that Matthew's picking up the use of Isaiah Isaiah 7 is much more in the typological fashion. And then also kind of indirectly, and this was actually an argument I got from an atheist who's arguing for the historicity of Jesus. Um, One of the ways that he argues for the historicity of Jesus is that he wants to argue that these prophecies that they claim that Jesus fulfilled are kind of a jumbled mess. It's just like it's almost like they're just looking through the Old Testament, saying, "Oh yeah, make this a fulfillment, make this a fulfillment." And what they wanted, what he was actually saying, is in, that these things are are in some sense true. They're just looking for a proof text from it. So what I want to say is actually true in in Matthew. So if people want to say that there was no virgin birth, uh, the kind of the interesting thing is that why would Matthew argue for a virgin birth? And what this atheist would almost suggest is that there probably, well, he wouldn't say that there probably was a virgin birth, but there was a virgin birth that took place, and then they went looking for the proof text to prove it. And so that's one of the things that's kind of fascinating. So why would <coughs> why would Matthew come up with a virgin birth if it's not this messianic expectation, if it's not a, a proof text per se, um, why would he come up with it? And the trajectory of an answer would be, well, they were not looking for a virgin birth. There was a virgin birth, and the backdrop of that virgin birth, the fulfillment of all things, is actually the typological nature of numerous women throughout Israel's history giving birth. And so Mary being the fulfillment of it, Jesus being the fulfillment of all these other miraculous children being born, Jesus' the fulfillment of all those things. And I think that's the best way to understood, understand in general, uh, even as you go into Matthew chapter 2, when he ends up quoting Hosea, the best way to understand these things, uh, the best way to understand fulfillment is much more typological in nature rather than straightforward. And then what is that sign that's going to happen is these tyrants are going down. And that, I think, ties into our own theme. Uh, This conference coming up in May, it ties into our own condition. How do we know that tyrants are going down? Because the virgin was with child, he was born, he suffered, was buried, was resurrected on the third day. So just as 2,000 years ago, uh, or even going back to 
2,700 years ago um, with, I believe it was ultimately Isaiah's child. Um, it was a sign of the destruction of these two kings. The virgin birth of Jesus is a sign of the destruction of all uh, earthly pagan uh, powers, and that sign still holds to us today. And so uh, hopefully that's helpful in thinking through it. I, I still don't think if a Jew asks you how Jesus fulfilled Isaiah 7, I don't think there's a straightforward answer for them, because you can argue whether or not the text means virgin, whether or not it's going to be a preterist understanding or a future understanding. Uh, what we need to do with the Jew, ultimately, uh, who's willing to take the text seriously, is show how everything, in a sense, in the Old Testament is actually pointing forward to the Messiah. And that's part of a bigger discussion I think we can demonstrate, uh, starting in the Pentateuch, ending up with the prophets. So that's this episode of the Campus Church Podcast. Hopefully that's helpful and beneficial in some regard. If you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, feel free to reach out to me, Keith, at CampusPreacher.com, Keith Darrell on Facebook, Campus Evangel on Twitter, and Campus Preacher on Instagram. Lord bless you, keep you, talk to you next week. Behold, a sore went forth to sow, bearing precious seed in his hand. Hoping and hope that he might see it grow. Knowing that the harvest might well come before the bloom. He runs on his way, there's no time to.